We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39 today. Um, Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Um, Lord, I thank you for this, um, this second sermon that Matthew records of Christ and the gospel of Matthew. Lord, I found this sermon deeply uh, convicting, deeply um, concerning at times in light of things uh, that we see around us. Lord, the eye-opening might be the, the, the word I'm looking for. And so, Father, as we uh, study these few verses, Lord, as we continue through this sermon that Christ um, gave or this message, this discourse that he gave to his disciples, uh, Lord, we pray um, that you would help us to understand what he said in context, Lord, that you would um, Lord, really open our hearts, Lord, that we would uh, be able to uh, make the assumption that this applies to us, that we, uh, the, the things that Jesus is going to begin sort of um, pressing and, con- and, and, and challenging them, Lord, I pray that you would guard us from saying that we have it all together. And that it doesn't apply to us, Lord. Help us um, to receive these verses, Lord, in a way that um, we would allow it to to, to hurt and to challenge us, that we would be moved by them, Lord, into deeper relationship with you. Uh, Again, Lord, I do thank you uh, for this passage. I thank you, Lord, for your guidance. I, I ask that you would help us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And Father, we do thank you for this word. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds, Lord, to comprehend what's being said here. We pray that your spirit would guide us through your word now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, to be totally honest with you guys, I have never been asked to speak somewhere. A lot of times when I go to speak somewhere, they say, hey, just talk on whatever you want to talk about. Like, we'll just, wherever wherever the Spirit leads, just go ahead and speak on that. Never, ever, ever, ever have I landed on this passage. This is not a a passage that, that I would choose to speak on. It's uncomfortable. It's not politically correct. It challenges us. It steps on our toes. It's, it, it, it has been causing me some anxiety is probably the wrong word this week, but, but concerns that I have to stand here and speak on this one. Um, this is one of those messages where I probably don't want to make a lot of eye contact. I will be looking at my feet and looking at the chairs and looking up at the ceiling. I am... In one respect, I'm not challenging any individual person. This is what Jesus spoke to his disciples. Uh, we go through books of the Bible, and I, my aim is to um, faithfully present as best as I can what Jesus taught, what the Word of God says. I am just a, a, a simple uh, messenger reading and teaching uh, the Word of God. And there are times that it's more difficult. Uh, th- this is a challenging message. As I have been reflecting on these few verses, I have been reflecting a lot on the young 20-something-year-old gunner that came to Christ. Um, I remember during those years, I, I think really between like 1993 to about 1999, in that six-year window, God was doing a, a whole lot of work in my life, and I became a Christian somewhere in that window. The, the, the best I've identified is sort of, um, I know that by 1996, I was a believer. 
I, um, my coming to Christ was, you know, I, I wish I had a different testimony in a lot of ways. I wish I could say that you know, I, was, I was an intellectual. I was on this quest for God. That's not how it worked for me. I can't change my testimony. Uh, my testimony is what my testimony is. By 20 years old, I had or 20 to 24, that age range, I, I really um, was struggling internally. I, my, my sin was weighing on me greatly, overwhelming to me. I, I knew that deep within me, there was a huge disconnect between me and God. I, I couldn't articulate that at the time, but in hindsight, there was this wrestling match between God and I. I, um, on the outside, everything was great. I was, in many ways, was sort of just like a rock star. I was a Navy SEAL. Everything was going great. I'd survived this great challenge. I was living a dream of, of, a, of a ton of people, like everybody. Like, I can't tell you how many people. I said, oh, yeah, I was going to be a Navy SEAL, but then I thought about it, and I didn't do it. And, and so there I was. I was I, out, on the outside, everything was just awesome. But on the inside, I was rotting away. I had, uh, I had gone through all of this achievement, really seeking contentment and seeking peace and trying to fill a void that was within me. And I couldn't have articulated this to you at the time. This is me looking back at the young gunner. And I had made poor decision after poor decision after poor decision. And I'd sort of come to the, the, the end of the, the road where... I, I was hopeless, and I found myself hitting the bottle more and more, trying to, if I drank more, maybe it would sort of fill this void or this feeling that I was going through, and yet it would just leave me sort of feeling more guilty and more, something was wrong. And around this time, my friend became a Christian, nagged me, you know, to go to church. A number of people started presenting the gospel um, in a, a broken sort of way. And I finally reached the place where I had enough information that I gathered that, that my method was had broken and wasn't working and that Jesus was the solution to that problem. And that was about all I had. I, I, I didn't have any um, biblical instruction. I didn't have somebody sort of sit me down by point by point sort of... Uh, showing me what the Christian life was all about. Um, I believe strongly in, in discipleship and Christian teaching at this point because it's probably what I didn't have. Um, like, so I love that Dave's teaching like spiritual disciplines and, and we have these various Sunday school classes and Bible studies. And a lot of this, this heart is to help equip us in this life. And so I reached the point, uh, broken one night, which I don't know which night it was, but there were a lot of nights during this season where I found myself sort of crying out to God in the middle of the nights, trusting in him for salvation, not knowing um, what that meant, not knowing what the cost, not knowing what the implications were, just knowing that I needed help. And during this window, as I look back, it was a very exciting time in my life, um, when I trusted in Christ, I knew that I had been transformed on the inside, not from Scripture. I just, something was different. I wish I could say that the external gunner, things looked different, but they didn't really look a whole lot different on the outside. There was a lot of work to be done. I was kind of a mess. And, and so, but on the inside, there was something different had happened. I, I, I had been born again. Um, as Romans, as Paul writes in Romans 5.1, he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I was experiencing. I knew that now there was peace with my creator. It didn't necessarily mean that my life was still working out. It didn't mean that I wasn't still struggling with sin. Um, but, I, but suddenly something shifted where my sin suddenly became like all the more, wor- like not the worse, but it just weighed on me all the more. Um, you know, I would go to church on Tuesday night and I go to church Sunday night, but Monday night I knew where the dollar beer special was. And so I was still living two lives, but suddenly the, the other life, my non walking with Christ life, the guilt of it was just so much more. And I, I kind of, during that time, remember thinking, I think I've just grown immune to the alcohol. So I need to like up the, an- I need to like up the ante to try to, 
to try to get back that feeling I had. And it just, it, it took me a while to, to realize that, that I was chasing something that Christ had given me in other places. And so it was wonderful. Um, when I came to Christ, I knew that I had sort of stepped over some invisible line in the sand. Um, I couldn't have articulated. I knew none of the promises. For all I knew that the scripture said is that if you become a Christian, all of your problems will be fixed. Everything will be okay. Um, I didn't know verses like 2 Timothy chapter 2, the first 10 verses that speak to Timothy as a believer to say, uh, honor the, the one whom enlisted you into his service in terms of like military sort of service that you as a Christian have are now on, on this team and there's conflict. I didn't know that, but, but I sort of intuitively did. I knew that having trusted in Christ, in my mind, I became this sort of Jesus freak and I needed to sort of guard this information for my friends because I felt the tension that was there in, in the spiritual realm, but not knowing how to articulate it. I think this is as common for us in the United States. I think much of the church comes to Christ sort of um, coming to Jesus because he'll just fix everything. But that creates some problems. And Jesus doesn't, it doesn't even align with what Jesus presents. And so as we've been working through Matthew chapter 10, uh, coming to this, the very, the first 15 verses or so, Jesus has gathered his disciples, the 12 of them. He's going to send them out on this short-term missions journey uh, to reach the lost sheep of Israel. He's grooming them. He's teaching them. He's He's helping them to sort of to launch. And he tells them that as they do this, they're going to face persecution. Face persecution that's going to grow, grow from bad to worse. That uh, they're, they're going to find conflict within their families, within their religious systems. That they're going to be turned over in the synagogue to the, to the courts. And it's going to get worse until the Son of Man appears. But then he says, don't freak out. I'm sure he saw the anxiety. He said, don't worry. He gives them three very good reasons that they don't need to fear. Um, and so from this not fearing, we enter into this, this section. Um, this last section, in this final section, he's going to cover three points. We're only looking at two of them today. The third point will be covered next week. And in this section, Jesus says, there's going to be family hostility. Uh, there, and the second point is you need um, to prioritize your family values in many ways. And then next week, he's going to look at the eternal rewards of following him as he concludes this section. And so we come to verse 34. In verse 34, we're going to hear teaching about Jesus that just doesn't align with the, the Jesus that, that I've been presented with as, a, as an American. Look at the words of Jesus. He says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I've already shared with you Romans 5.1. I, I said that I, as I came to Christ, I experienced peace with God. And, and that verse, kind of going back, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the image is, is that before Christ, you are at war with God because of your sin. We reach the place in our life where the gospel is presented that Jesus came. He was crucified according to scriptures and for payment of your sin, he was buried and he rose on the third day. We, we hear this information. We reach the place in our lives where we say, yes, I believe. And at that moment of belief, the scripture tells us that we go from being in Adam, in sin, to being placed in Christ, that we're no longer at war with God, but that we have peace with God. We're coming into the Christmas season. You know, uh, some of my family members, I'm not a part of it, but are in the Christmas choir. So it's, well, it was September. We're now in October. I'm hearing Christmas songs already, which is like a, that's a great thing for me. Like I... I love Christmas. I think we have nine more weekends before Christmas comes or something like that. I, uh, maybe we've ticked down. I forget the actual number, but, I, uh, but, but we're getting close. I, uh, I enjoy Christmas. I love the, this, the, 
from from Thanksgiving to Christmas time, it's just the best time of the year. I, I love the food, the family, the friends, just a joyous time. Um, we read verses, Isaiah 9, 6 during Christmas, that, 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 that the Prince of Peace will come. And so then we read about this Prince of Peace who says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. How do we rectify this? How do we reconcile that truth? And I, and I think that the issue comes in a number of ways. I, I don't really see a conflict. Jesus' first coming, when we celebrate his birth, um, when we look at the whole of Scripture, we see now, in hindsight, that there's actually two comings of Christ. There's his first, where he's coming as a suffering servant. He's coming to make uh, a way that individuals can come to peace with God through him, that their sin will be paid for. That's Romans 5.1. We also see a, a second coming. If we were to go to Revelation chapter 20, we see this image of Jesus coming with a, an iron fist and a sword out of his mouth, and he's going, he will make peace. But as he's speaking here to his disciples, he's telling them, listen, by following me, this will be the greatest decision that you ever make. You will have peace with God. But, but don't be misled. Don't think that coming after, following me will result in health, wealth, um, what, what else comes? Health, prosperity, just good. Everything's going to go well. He says that a sword will come. There's going to be a division. There's going to be a line in the sand. Um, This is eye-opening. All of chapter 10. I'm I'm, I'm reading through this, and I think of the poor disciples like, man, we were just, we didn't get selected by any other rabbi. We're fishermen and tax collectors, and this rabbi comes along, follow me. I follow him. He's doing all these great things. Crowds are developing. And now he comes with this very sobering information. It just gets, I, I mean, Week after week, or I mean, it's not for us, it's week after week, but for them, he, he's just unloading on them the, the reality of what they would face. It, this week, I've, I, this morning it came to mind, it reminded me of old Shackleton. Shackleton was the English explorer of early 1900s who wanted to go explore Antarctica. He wanted to gather a few men to go down there. And in order to find men, he put up this, uh, it was a very basic sort of ad And the ad read this, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. And who would respond to that crazy advertisement? There's very little money, darkness, cold, bitter, like the likelihood of you surviving this Slim to none. But if you succeed, there's great rewards at the end. Shackleton was a great leader. They had, I mean, his book of like just what they went through. Every, every man survived. Maybe not all of every man survived. Like there was a lot of amputations along the way, but every soul made it back from the journey. Um, and it just kind of reminds me of, or, or maybe I should say Jesus's example of how he prepared and challenged his believers was a lot like Shackleton. There's no, um, there's no false hope that hey, you follow me, your 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 life is eternal. There's reward in the future. But the reality is, is you following me today in this lifetime, it it, it will likely come at a great cost. Uh, Randy Alcorn in his book Heaven, there's a quote. He says, uh, "The best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven." And the worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, it is the closest thing they will come to heaven. And hearing that quote and reading these words of Jesus and looking back to early converted gunner, I knew that the moment that I had received Christ, or at that moment, I would say that season when I when I came to know Christ, I experienced this this peace of my soul with God. But I felt, although I wasn't taught it, I, I felt this line in the sand. I, I knew that by by linking my life with Christ, 
that all of my relationships that I had up to that point, that there was going to be friction, that I was cutting against the grain, I was going against everything um, that this world stood for and loved ones and family members, what they believed in. In many ways, I thought they'd be like, oh, good for you, Gunner. You're a Christian. You're going to, like, this is good. Um, That's not necessarily the reaction I I got from a lot of my relationships, which became strained after following Christ. Many of those strained relationships are a lot better now today, 20 years later, because I think they're like, oh, Gunner, I guess this isn't a fad. Like, this is just Gunner, and he has decided to follow Jesus. And um, some of the people who have given me great grief over the years have come to Christ, and Others just aren't in my life, and uh, it's difficult. And, and I think that this is actually really beautiful, that Jesus doesn't bait. He doesn't bait and switch. He doesn't present this like, listen, everything's going to get better. It may, like, it may get better. But he's like, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. I, I, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And I think that there's a lot of Christians who come to Christ thinking, well, if I just give my life to him, all my problems will be solved and life will be good. It would be the same. I know I've used this illustration before, but, it's, but I can only imagine if when I was first learning how to skydive in the military, if during the classes they were going over the parachute, how it worked, they say, oh, guys, you put this on, and it's just going to make your flight wonderful, so comfortable, so pleasurable, um, I would have gotten on the plane. I would have been cinched up. Now you've got to fly like this because you've got a parachute on your back. After like 20 minutes, your total misery, just the pain on your shoulders from being cinched down and your, your uh, inner thighs, everything cinched up, hunched forward, just miserable. I'd have been like, this is not a more comfortable flight. I'm going to take this thing off. And just, what are they thinking? But that's not how they presented the parachute to me. They said, you're going to be falling at 120 miles an hour. You need to make sure all your lines are straight because when it opens, that's going to slow you down so that you don't uh, face the sudden impact of hitting the ground. And all the parachuting instructors, always the big joke is like, jumping on the plane doesn't kill you. It's just that sudden stop that kills you. And this presents, pre- prevents that from happening. And, and so then knowing what the parachute was for, I could go hours in a plane, hunched over, aching pain because I'm like, this parachute isn't here to give me a comfortable flight. This parachute here is to save my life before I hit the ground. But I think a lot of, a lot of people have presented uh, Christianity or, or Jesus as a parachute that's to make your life more comfortable in this lifetime. And so they put on the parachute of Christ and they realize that now there's friction with their family members. There's friction at their places of employment. There's friction within their very homes. They say, this isn't making my life better, so I'm done with Christ. But that's not how Jesus presents himself. He says, I'm, I've presented myself to save your souls. Your greatest worry is standing before God as a sinner. And I'm coming, I've come to make a way so that you could have peace with God. Well, then as we've put on Christ as followers of him, when we're presented with the reality of this spiritual warfare that's happening amongst us, when Jesus tells us, don't think that I came to bring peace on earth, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, this is actually beautiful. This helps us. I'm very surprised at how surprised Christians are at the resistance that the world, the nation, politics, the people around us, like, why are Christians surprised that there's resistance for what they believe and how they practice and how they go about. Like, we shouldn't be surprised. And Jesus said, don't be surprised. You should be more surprised when there's not resistance. And so from here, he's going to quote from the Old Testament. He's going to quote from Micah 7, 6. uh, Micah goes through, he's seven chapters. And Jesus, as he's talking to them, he's going to quote from Micah. And in Micah 7, 6, what it says there, for our, I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. And so Jesus quotes from Micah, I believe what he's doing is he's, he's, he's addressing during their culture the very most prized 
valued unit that an individual could have. It's their, this, this family unit. Um, it, we Americans, I don't think we fully grasp this, how important family um, at the intimate level was. It was everything to them. And so Jesus, when he says this, he says, listen, when I come, there's going to be division. That, that like a father and son shouldn't turn on each other. I've got to find my place here. What is it? It's a set of man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the men, enemies. Of, this doesn't, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And yet Jesus tells his disciples that this is the friction that by attaching your life to mine in these most intimate relationships, there's going to be friction, to put it mildly. So don't be surprised. I do want to highlight, though, I've seen in Christian circles, um, this is not an encouragement, a plea of Jesus to, for, for us uh, followers, for those who have linked their lives with Christ. This is not an encouragement to be a, a, a difficult person. This doesn't mean that in these relationships that we're supposed to be divisive, we're supposed to um, uh, just be mean to people. Um, what Jesus is saying is by following me, there's going to be strain in these relationships. When I look at the whole of Scripture, I, I see things like already we've covered Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called uh, sons of God, that, that those who have identified with the king and his kingdom one of the values is making peace. When I look at Romans twelve eighteen, Paul there says, after going through this great list, he says, so if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So that the, the follower of Christ, that we're to live our lives in such a way that we're trying to make peace. But in living our lives for him, there's going to be division no matter... Um, what we do. And I love in Micah, if you were to go to Micah, I think Jesus sort of in his teaching follows Micah. I don't know Micah as well as Jesus did, so I had to go look it up and sort of read in context. And, and so in Micah 7, 6, Micah talks about this, this division. And in verse 7, immediately from this, Micah sort of concludes his book and he says, but as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation and God will hear me. And so he speaks of this friction, this division, Micah, that's going to be within his life. But he says, regardless of this, I'm going to keep my eyes on the Lord. I'm going to follow after him regardless of what's happening here. Um, this whole week, just thinking about family tensions and strain, what I think Jesus is getting at is this is nothing new. Um, you know, Gideon and I, we've been having our Bible time. So I've been, so I'm reading the Bible again for the fifth time this year. And uh, it's a children's Bible, but it counts, right? You know, a little kid's picture Bible. I'm like my sixth time through this Bible. You guys are all impressed. It's like, yeah, it's just a children's Bible. So we're, we're circling through again on a new one. And this week, it, um, we're in the beginning. And, you know, after... Uh, the creation of the world and the kids' Bible story it goes from the creation, uh, everybody's there, everybody's good, and there's the, the fruit story. And then I think about the third story, it's always Cain and Abel. And, and so here's the story of Cain and Abel, that, that, that Cain kills Abel over his relationship with God, that, that, like, that, that friction has always, ever since the fall, as soon as the fall happened, there are those who walk with God, and then there's those who, who don't. And those who don't, there's great animosity um, towards those people to the point where like, Cain killed his brother over his brother making a sacrifice to God that God was pleased with. And I think this is sort of Jesus' bent is there's, there's always been friction and there always will be friction for those who choose to follow after me. And then he goes to this, this prior, prioritizing Family, or prioritizing Christ, I should say, within family. Prioritizing family is not what he's saying. That he's saying place Christ at the forefront of all things. Uh, verse 37 says, He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I've already mentioned the great value that that culture at that time placed on, 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 on family and the family unit and how um, like the, the unit of the family name, like they really were one, like decisions weren't made individually, they were made as a, as a unit and how you behaved affected the whole of the unit. It, it's, um, for us, I think it's a little bit difficult um, through our eyes of, of being Americans. Ben and I are like listening through a book right now that's really good, highly recommend it. It's a misreading scripture through Western eyes. And so these guys are talking about how we so easily read our culture into the text. And the text, uh, what was happening during the first century for a Jewish village in the Galilee isn't necessarily how we lived our lives, how we live our lives today, but we sort of project our culture. And so as I'm looking at this story, I believe that Jesus is taking this most valued thing for, for first century Jews of what they valued. And he's saying that by following me, there's going to be sort of fractures that, that enter into this. But for those of you who follow after me, he's like for the family unit that follows, there's this desire to place Christ first within that unit. He's not saying don't love your father or son or your daughter He's saying loves more than me, so you're to love them, this family unit God's created, that the God created family and marriage, and, and, and he wants it to be whole. But as you're living this, he wants Christ to be at the center. As I've been reflecting on this this week, I wonder if this story happened in Southern California during our, during our lifetime, if Jesus pulled 12 of us and we're walking through him from you know, San Diego to Orange County to L.A., the, the bad place, you know, like that's the, uh, that's like the, the, to me, that'd be like the Samaritans. I avoid L.A. at all costs. And, and uh, <laughs> Ben likes L.A., so I don't understand it. I, uh, <clears throat> like, I wonder what he would say in our culture. Like, what would he challenge? Uh, he, he, his point is, you love me above all else, above extracurricular activities, your hobbies, um, sports, anything that we would place above God, I think he might challenge during this this period. And so his, his call to his disciples is, regardless of what happens, you keep me first. And in your family unit, you you need to keep me first and foremost. How, How do we prioritize Christ? What is... What, what things in the Bible jump out at me as, I, as I've been contemplating prioritizing Christ? Well, the one, if you would turn with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, this is referred to as the Shema. Um, every Jewish person, still to this day, if you were to go to their house, there's a little box mezuzah tacked onto the door. Um, they have this passage. Jesus when asked by the religious leaders, hey, can you summarize the whole Bible? What is the greatest command of all? Uh, the greatest command, Jesus says, is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And, and I think it ties into what he's saying or what he's asking his disciples. So read with me here. It says, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So, so this greatest commandment, what, what, what it's saying is from, the, from your toes to the top of your head, from your innermost being to your, outer, to your outside, you should be consumed with loving God. I think of that song today, like I didn't realize during the first service, but I, it came, I understood. Because anytime I have a song stuck in my head, it means that I recently sung it. Like it's not because I have a, a deep pool of songs in my bank. If I get a song stuck in my head, it's like, I must have re- listened to this recently. And so it started happening to me this time during the first service. I started thinking about that song. How can I keep from singing? How, and, I, and I had to, I'm like, did we sing this today? And it was like, yeah, we, did, we just sung it like five minutes ago. And I was like, oh, that explains why it's stuck in my head. But this song, like, how can I keep from singing? Like, how can I go in my life without thinking about God? He's done so much for me. Uh, 
in Christ, he's provided peace with God that I should just go throughout my life loving him and thinking about him. Verse 7. He he builds from this Moses here in the Shema. It goes from that you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You shall teach them diligently with purpose to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down or when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your head, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So when Jesus refers to the greatest command in the whole scripture, I, I read this and it's like, how in the world do we like, how, how do we do this? Like Jesus challenges, God has always challenged his followers. You give everything. God loves us. He's gone through great measure to provide a way that we would have peace with him. And he wants us to to love him back. And when I look at this, this is, see, as I come to know God and I come to see that his demand, that while he paid it all for me, that salvation is a free gift, he really desires that we respond and like, that we Give him all that we have. That as we live our lives, we, we seek opportunities. If you have children in your home, that, that your, your mind and your action is consumed with thinking and pondering and considering who God is. That when you go through your life and you see situations, whether you see the, the, the moon in the sky and you're unloading your kids from the car, this is my life right now. It's like, oh, look at the moon. Isn't God wonderful how he placed that in the sky for us to look at? Or you see something is like, isn't God wonderful? Just that everything becomes a teaching moment to our young ones to point them to God. Maybe your kids are out of the house. So maybe it's your neighbor, your friends, whoever it is. That it's just, it's, it's a consuming passion. But this world is pulling us. Our, our hearts wicked, our flesh is strong. It's so easy to be pulled off course. And if you'll turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 5, this is the next passage that's sort of thinking about what Jesus says, that we're to, to love him above all else. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, I mentioned these with Kairos. These are some of my favorite verses in the, the whole of Scripture. And here Paul writes, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, Kairos, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul urges the church here. Listen, guys, the, the, the days are evil. You're walking a tightrope. You're, you're living your life, and on the left and on the right, everywhere around you, there are, there are pulls and there are strains that are keeping you from God. And so you have to walk very carefully. I think it's like the King James that says circumvently, like this, with great caution. You're to take, make the most of every opportunity that God is placing these things in your life for you to respond to, and, and he calls us to respond wisely. Don't be foolish. He says, don't be drunk with wine. The issue is that we have freedom in Christ to have a glass of wine with a meal. This isn't a, a, a call for, for abstaining totally from alcohol. The issue is drunkenness. But the point he's making is control of your life, that the issue is that your life is filled with the Spirit, that you're walking with Him. And that as we walk through our lives thinking about Christ and what He's done and, and living for Him, This passage then expands into every single area of the human life. He says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ in verse 20, that we as Christians, we subject to one another out of this fear of Christ, this love for him. He goes into these relationships between wives and husbands, the most intimate and personal relationship that any human can possibly understand. It's so close that this is, what, what God chooses to illustrate our relationship with him 
in Christ. So he deals with Christian wives and how their relationship with their husbands are, and Christian men, how their relationships are with their wives. By chapter 6, verse 1, it goes to the children who are followers of Christ, how they're to relate to their parents, and fathers, how they're to relate to their sons, to slaves, or really to, to employers or employees, how you're to relate to your your places of employment and to employers or masters, how you're to treat your employees. It's just that the gospel that Jesus, once you've given your life to him, he invades every single aspect of your life. Like, I don't know who said it, but I heard it, that Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you'd have to go to church once a week or once a year or twice a year if you really want to that Jesus died for you and in your coming to Christ, that this, it, it just, every single, it's all consuming is what he wants. And I read passages like this and I look back to young 20-something-year-old Gunner where my life is a mess and I knew it was broken and I just needed help and I just turned to Jesus. I had no idea what I'd done. Then I read these passages about uh, that like later in life that I was like, you know, Second Timothy chapter 2, the first 10 verses, this, this military terms of, of enlisting into, that you are enlisted by your commander into his ranks. There was no consideration on my part. I just knew that what I was doing was broken and Jesus seemed to be a good, a good answer and it's, it's worked. But when I look at these verses of like, really, that Jesus tells his followers to count the cost, to examine well, I know when I enlisted the Navy, it's like, well, I want to go be a SEAL. It's going to be a hard road. I'm going to be likely go to combat. That, that, that the whole purpose of this uh, vocation is to serve in this capacity, and there's great dangers and great risk. And I examined them to the best of my immature 18-year-old brain that I could. But I gave some thought to it, which says a lot for 18-year-old Gunner. But when it came to Christ, like, there was never this sort of like measure the cost Jesus paid it all, but then there's expectations on us. Okay, moving on to the next one. The next, as I look at Jesus and what he says, just to kind of keep us focused here. We're going to go to Hebrews um, chapter 10, verse 19, if you need some time to find that in the Bible. Jesus says, he who loves his father and mother or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And I think that Jesus is saying here, you need to make me the top priority in your life. We see this in Deuteronomy, that the governing verse of the whole Bible, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest command? He says the greatest command is to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your might. Everything within you, you're to love God with that. And Jesus is here, is telling us to prioritize him. And there's great difficulty in that. And so then I see Paul in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, telling us that this life, this world that we're in has fallen. And there's going to be, Jesus has said that he's made this line in the sand and there's division. And it's so easy for us to get sucked over to living our lives according to this world. And so Paul says you need to walk carefully. The days are evil. Focus on him. And it bleeds into every area of your life. Then I've seen, and if you turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, excuse me. This author, this, this Hebrews, really, I, I, I'm toying with the idea of going from Matthew to Hebrews. I think they go hand in hand, sort of uncovering the Old Testament uh, through New Testament lens. He, Hebrews shows everything um, that was sort of foreshadowed in the Old Testament and how Christ fulfilled it and what it means. And So in chapter 10, verse 19, we read, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated us through the veil, his flesh. We're about to, we, communion is being offered today. And, and part of communion is remembering, reflecting on what Jesus did for us. And, 
Hebrews, look at what it says, that through the blood of Jesus, we now have access. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is beautiful. This is this sanctification. This is Romans 5.1, that we have peace with God through faith because of Christ, not because of our own works. Then he goes on, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This, um, this passage is beautiful. It moves from you being at war with God, that you're not having peace because of your sin, showing how the blood of Christ has sprinkled us, has cleaned us, has, has entered us into relationship with God. And then it moves... Against the grain, I think, of much of, of American culture where we think that faith is just so on an individualistic sort of understanding. It, it moves from you being washed, you being clean, to now that you've been clean, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So much of today, I keep reflecting back to that young 20-something-year-old gunner. And by 26, or 1996, I don't know how old, no, 1996, I was 22, I think. So I'm 22. I came to Christ somewhere. Like I, by, by, by 1996, I know that I, I, I had reached a place of like surrender. Um, but I had been a Christian for a while, but sort of struggling with the whole yo-yo of how to... to to kind of be in this world and not of the world and how do I fit all these things together? And during that window, I remember noticing that my being in church, like there was a direct correlation between how I was living my life. If I was walking in the flesh and walking away from God, my, my, my like attendance in church became a little sporadic. I'll just to be nice to Gunner. And I remember stumbling across this somehow, the Spirit of God most likely, and becoming deeply convicted at 22. Uh, just for the record, I was not a pastor. I was a Navy SEAL. I don't go to church because I'm a pastor. I come to church because I'm a Christian. But I remember in that moment, sort of having one of these like lines in the sand with God, where I kind of committed myself, like, as long as I am able, I will be at church worshiping with the saints on Sundays. Um, the author of Hebrews makes it apparent that God says that the, that the local church worshiping in this environment is important to us. It's important to God. So much so that, that, that as God talks about this intimate relationship we have um, with him, the bride of Christ, it's not that I'm the bride of Christ. It's that we collectively, as the body of Christ, are. I just said it without even realizing it, that we as a group of locals who walk with God that gather, that we're referred to as his bride. It's, it's powerful. And this isn't to like, I, I want to say this isn't to convict you. That's my politically correctness. Like, like we should be convicted by the word of God. Like if you have the spirit, you're going to be convicted. But I'm not trying to guilt or shame or embarrass like anybody. I'm not looking at anybody. I have nobody in mind. I'm just looking at the, the Bible and putting Christ first. And as we put Christ first, it manifests in the, the fellowship, in the walking with fellow saints. It's God's design. The church needs you. If you are a believer, that means that you have the spirit of God within you, that God has given you at least a spiritual gift that you are to, to employ at, within the local church, that, that the church needs believers to participate, to be involved, to be in community, to be working with one another. It's how he designed it. This week, I 
read a blog, and the title of the blog, well, it wasn't really a blog. It was a blog that shared sort of a covenant from a local church, and they titled the blog Seven Reasons um, Like Faithfully Showing Up to Church Matters. And one of the things they read, read in, one of the things that I read that they wrote um, in their introduction is faithful attendance in church honors Christ and builds up his church. Non-attendance moves in the other direction. It makes light of his name and harms his church in many ways and for many reasons. I'm not saying this. Like, I'm not trying to be legalistic or whatever, but I, you know, so, so often I hear of people in general, not you, that you all have heard it too. I started going to church because I wanted my kids to have this sort of environment. And so, so they're sort of like, we go because it's good for our kids. And then our kids grow up, then we're kind of done because we only were doing it to kind of help them. Well, the Bible makes the case, like, if you love Jesus, worshiping weekly with his people is priority because this is a huge place where God works amongst his people. And so it's, it's important for us, but we live in Valley Center where it's mostly made up of empty nesters type people. And so if your kids are out of the house, you're needed, you're, you're valued, you're a part of the body. And this is God has, has created us to worship together. So we're all in church today. I'm not guilting anybody. We're all faithful. We're all here. This is, you know, this isn't, and I'm not asking you to look around to see who's not here. That's not what I'm doing in all of this. Um, but, the, but the priority, and, and back to Matthew. So in Matthew, Jesus is talking about this, this, this placing him in the center. In Matthew chapter 12, so in a, just a, in a couple stories ahead, at the very end of Matthew, I'm not, actually, I forgot, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you guys about it. Jesus is teaching. He's with his disciples. He's in this house. There's a knock at the door. The bouncer or whoever is standing at the door. And says, How can I help you? And it's Mary and her other children. And she says, we need to get to Jesus. I'm his mom and these are his brothers. And we need to talk to him. I says, stay here. I'll go let, I'll go let him know. The guy goes to Jesus and he says, hey, listen, your mom and your brothers are up front. You're in trouble. <laughs> Time to go home. <laughs> Mom wants you. And Jesus looks at the room and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looks at his disciples and he says, these are my mother and my brothers and my sisters, the ones who do the will of God. And so, okay, time to wrap up here. Into communion. We're taking communion today. Um, Jesus from this. He says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. If we were to read this story over in the Gospel of Luke, we would read this same exact passage, worded slightly differently. But then Luke expands upon it. And he says, what? What commander before going to war doesn't count the cost? What, what foreman or construction guy before he builds a house doesn't stop to sort of count the cost? And so as we come to communion, we're reminded that Jesus, the crackers rep- represent his body, the juice represents his blood. I think I got it backwards here. This is the juices, crackers. This is a reminder to us of what Jesus did for us. And here for the first time in Matthew, Matthew represents the cross, or he uses this word, the cross. Jesus isn't speaking about his cross. We look back and we know about the cross. But during that time, under Roman authority, they cared about peace, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so for any individual that would go, that do anything that would sort of cause non-peace, they would go before the courts, and if they were found guilty, they would receive capital punishment. And it's not like capital punishment in our system where you're sentenced to death and you spend your whole life appealing it, and then you die naturally in prison for most people. That's not how it was. 
as they were found guilty, what they were given is the crossbar of the cross, and then they were required it to carry that cross beam to the place of execution. I don't know that the prisoners necessarily would agree with what I'm about to say, but what Rome believed is that that person in carrying the crossbeam, it was a public display of their acknowledging that they were wrong and that they deserved this punishment that Rome was giving to them. And so they would carry their cross or their, the crossbeam of it to the place of execution. And so in reflecting on this, he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And this is, I think, Jesus is saying, I did this for you. I, I died for you that you might have life. The story goes traditionally that uh, when a young man was proposed to a girl, they got engaged, he would then go and he'd build onto his father's house a room for them to, um, to, to live in. When the house was ready, he would go back to his wife or the, the, the what do you call it, the fiance or whatever, and he would offer her a glass of wine. And the wine sort of was symbolic saying that everything I have, everything that I am, I'm offering it to you. And so we understand that aspect of communion. We're great takers. Like that Jesus died for us. We're willing to take. Who doesn't want eternal life? Who, who doesn't? All I got to do is believe. Yeah, that's, I'm good. But see, now there's another side of the coin that for the woman or the, 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 the bride, she could back out. But, but her taking the cup, it didn't really happen. But when she took the cup to drink from it, she was saying, and everything I have is yours as well. And their lives would be merged. And so I want to close. We're going to, go to, we're going to take communion now. And in Romans 12.1, what I would like us to think about, to ponder, is that Jesus is giving us our lives. He says that as you surrender your life to me, you actually find it. Like that, that's where true contentment is, is found. It seems so backwards. And the longer that I walk with him, the more I see. I see believers that have all kinds of money, and they have like the same kind of peace. And then I see believers who are in third world countries have nothing. And they have the same sort of peace. And it seems to be they walk through life open-handed. God gives, God takes. And their contentment is found in this relationship that they have with God. That they received what he gave and they've given all to him. And in Romans 12, 1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, which is powerful. We don't want fairness. God has been merciful and gracious to us. And Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, and I'm urging you through the mercy of God, not the guilt of God, not the powerful hand of God, but by his mercy, I'm urging you to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And I would, I would suggest that the, probably the better term for us, you could translate that word spiritual, is it as your reasonable service of worship. So I'm going to pray, and as we reflect on communion, if you don't want to take communion, don't take communion. It's not, it's not forced upon you if you're not a believer. But for those of us who are taking communion today, I, I want us, as we're taking this, to not only receive the gift, but to recognize that God is um, calling us to, to give us, give him our lives. And that as we partake of what he's done for us, that we would come before him anew um, and offering our lives to him so that he could use us however he desires. And Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this day. Lord, as we prepare to take communion, I, uh, and we reflect on what you did for us, that you, not knowing sin, became sin, that the weight of the world, the weight of the world's sin was placed upon you, and that you bore the wrath of God that we deserved, but that you took it from us. Lord, there are not words to express our gratitude for this, but Father, I pray that day by day you would help us to come into greater understanding of what this means. And as we come, as we participate in communion, Lord, Father, I pray that you would help us to count the cost, Lord, I pray that you would show us things in our life 
that have become idols, things that we place ahead of you, whether it's hobbies, whether it's sleep, whether it's uh, sports, work, family. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to, to move into relationship with you so that as you gave all for us, that we would desire to respond by giving you everything that we have, Lord. Father, we thank you that um, true peace and contentment is only found in you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.